This morning, we come to the conclusion of our series, this journey we've been on through the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11 this fall. We've called the series Beyond Repair, and if you have been with us for any amount of time, you've seen sort of the big arc of this beginning of the Bible as God creating the world in perfection, displaying many aspects of his creative and glorious character, creating humankind in his very own image as perfect beings as well. But when sin entered the world, everything began to change. Sin as a choice by Adam and Eve to rebel against God, to question his goodness and his godness. And as a result, we saw in Genesis chapter 4, that this sin was much more destructive than they ever conceived it would be. The destruction was profound, in fact, and in chapter 5, we saw that the result of this sin was actually death. And we see person after person, generation after generation dying. Death reigned on the earth as a result or a consequence of this sin. And by chapter 6, sin had taken its hold in the human condition and there was all-out rebellion against God, so much so that he judged the entire world, flooded the earth to purify it, to cleanse it, saving only Noah and his family to start over again. The most profound difficulty in human existence is corruption of the human race by sin. Sin is one of those things that we take all too casually. It's, it's sort of like that snake. You know, that friend that you had in high school that thought it was cool to buy a pet snake? And he played with the snake, and he bragged about the snake, and he took pictures of the snake, and then one day the snake bit him. Sin is like that drug that you dabble in and you say, it, it's, it's not a big deal. It's not going to be harmful. It's not going to affect anybody but me. But you fast forward down the line and the consequences are devastating. You know, a scorpion once asked a beaver if the beaver would give him a ride on his back across the river. And the beaver said, are you insane? When I take you across the river, you will sting me in the back and I'm going to drown. To which the scorpion laughed and replied, Oh, come on now. Why would I sting you? If I stung you, then we would both sink to the bottom and die. Use logic. That's illogical for you to think that. And so the beaver thought about it a minute and he said, Yeah, I guess you're right. Hop, a, hop aboard and away we'll go. And as the beaver was swimming across the river, sure enough, they were halfway across when the scorpion gave him a big old sting right in the middle of the back. And as the beaver and the scorpion were both sinking to the bottom of the river, the beaver looked at him and said, why would you do such a wicked, wicked thing? You yourself said it was illogical to do this. To which the scorpion sighed. Logic has nothing to do with it. It's just my nature. Sin, whether logical in its conception or illogical in its outcome, 
Its very nature is death and destruction. And that is why we've been going through Genesis 1 through 11 over the last number of weeks together. Because I want you to understand this very, very important reality. That the most destructive thing in this life is sin. You have a lot of problems. I have a lot of problems. But our biggest problem is the same. And that is we have been captured by sin. And when we begin to understand that reality as one of the key framework pieces for our human existence, then we have motivation to rightly try to avoid sin in our life. And we have motivation to rightly seek another remedy, a remedy that we cannot provide on our own. And that leads us to today's passage. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, will you? Genesis chapter 10 and 11 is the concluding section of this series. Remember where we've been? Noah and his sons get off the boat. God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And that's exactly what they do. Genesis chapter 10, we're not going to read the whole thing, but this gives us what is often referred to as the table of nations. Chapter 11 points us to one specific story that we'll focus on at the Tower of Babel. And then chapter 12, or the second half of chapter 11 revisits one of those nations, one line within the table of nations with a specific point attached to it. If we were to divide this up into four parts, we would say the first part of this text today is that God spreads uh, the people throughout the nations. And he chooses to use one nation specifically to display his purposes. Look with me at chapter 10. We'll read just a couple verses of it. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshesh and Tiras. Go down to verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush in Egypt and Put in Canaan. Down to verse 21. Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkashad, Lud, and Aram. And down to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad the earth after the flood. This list serves not simply as a genealogy to give a historical account of the people of the earth, but there is something more significant attached to it. If you were to count up all the names or clans in chapter 10 you would find 70 names in this list. And there are 70 names there, not by accident, but to display something. Because the number 70 in the Bible is often a number of completion. And we see this in other places. We see that there are 70 descendants of Jacob in Exodus chapter 1, that there are 70 elders of Israel in Exodus 24, and that Jesus himself sends out 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10. It's clear that some people are missing from this list 
But that's okay. It's not meant to be a strict historical account. It's meant to show 70 of them to display the point that God had completed his work. He had repopulated the earth. The nations had spread. And this was all a form of his blessing after the flood. Judgment was terrible, but blessing was worldwide as a result. Secondly, we see in this section of Genesis, in, verse, in chapter 11, verses 10 and on, that the line of Shem is given again and maybe even a little more detailed account. Now, it might strike you, if you were just reading through this, that why is Shem and his line talked about in chapter 10, verse 21, and then again in chapter 11, verse 10? Did he think that we forgot already? No. It's listed there for a purpose. And the purpose is to show that God is going to use this line, this people, the line of Shem, which would ultimately become known as the Semites, to display his power, his character, and his glory to all the world. He would make promises to this people. He would not allow human history to experience him in some sort of random, disconnected uh, variety of events, but that he would use a people and he would use their history to display to all people how God himself works in the world and just who he is. He would make promises to them called covenants. He would keep those covenants as time went on. He would judge their sin and he would call them back to repentance and faithfulness to himself. He would lead them. He would guide them. He would be near to them. This line of people, the line of Shem, would ultimately be known as the people of Israel. And from them would come Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses. Joshua, King David, King Solomon, and from this line of people, his son, his very own son, Jesus, would be born. This is where a genealogy can actually be encouraging to us. Because when you ever feel like life is out of control, like things are just way too much to handle right now, <laughs> we all feel that way sometimes. Some of us feel that way this morning. But a genealogy like this shows us that the God of heaven in all of his majesty and power and all of the different things that he has going on at one time has a detailed account of human history. He knows all of the people and all of their intricate details and that means he knows yours. And that you are not alone. That he cares for you. That he's enacting his purposes even through your life. And so you can respond to him in trust and obedience. Whether life is easy or whether life is difficult. And so we see post-flood that the people spread. God blessed the world. And his response is to command these nations to grow and to spread. They did just that. A new humanity was forming. But this new humanity would not be free from the struggles of old humanity. 
as their desires increased, their distortion increased, and their sin did as well. So look with me at chapter 11, will you? Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1, says this. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is the on, only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left the building. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In pride, the people came back together to build this tower at Babel. And we see a number of different facets of this very short story, but there are three specific offenses I want to highlight for you. Pride, rebellion, and humanizing God. Pride. Pride is deceptive in its nature, isn't it? You rarely become a prideful person overnight. Pride is one of those things that happens piece by piece, decision by decision, thought by thought. It doesn't flood into your existence in a single day or even a week. You become a prideful person over time. And it happens when you overly delight in your own accomplishments and you think of yourself more highly than you ought to. You minimize or you deny your shortcomings. You maximize your successes and you are deceived. You become deceived in thinking that you are something greater than you really are. A man was once asked why he always talked to himself and his response was an illustration of pride. He said, well, this is the way that it is. I like to talk with intelligent people. And I like to hear intelligent people talk. So I talk to myself. Woman was struggling with pride and the sin was so powerful in her life and she could not let it go. And so she called her pastor and she said, Pastor, I need to meet with you. And so they met together and she came into the pastor's office and she said, I have this besetting sin in my life that I can't break free from. It's the sin of pride. And he said, well, how so? To which she replied, every time I come to church, I look around 
and I see all of the other women in the church, and I know that I am more beautiful than every single one of them. And I can't come to church without this dominating my thoughts. Tell me, Pastor, how can I break free from this sin? The pastor thought about it for a moment, and he said, Mary, that's not a sin. That's just a mistake. <laughs> we see the offense of pride. It's deceitful in its nature. It can overtake us, and it's listed here in verse 4. Look at it with me. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. So great were these people in their own eyes that they wanted to be recognized and remembered. They wanted to be known not only throughout the land, but throughout history. I can think of no greater contemporary example of desire to be known and remembered than the international soccer superstar Cristiano Ronaldo. Any of you who are soccer fans undoubtedly know who Ronaldo is. He plays for Real Madrid, one of the largest soccer clubs in the world. And Cristiano Ronaldo is known in the soccer community to be, to be one, of, one of the greatest players of his generation, and he knows it. And it's on display for everyone to see. When his teammates do not play to his liking, he publicly shows his displeasure. If his coach is not coaching the way that he desires, he lets him have it. If his girlfriend does not do his bidding, he just goes and finds another one. Pride oozes from this Man, and it is displayed chiefly in his most recent endeavor. In December 2013, news outlets around the world announced that his hometown, in his hometown of Madeira, Portugal, which is an island off the coast of Portugal, Cristiano Ronaldo was opening a museum dedicated to his favorite subject, Cristiano Ronaldo. The museum dedicated to himself, features photographs, video, awards, shoes, soccer balls, everything you'd want to see on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> Outside the museum, Ronaldo had a statue of himself erected with a plaque underneath it that boldly proclaims the greatest football player in the world. Pride. Oozing from the man. Of course, this museum has room, vacant space in it, for the awards that he assumes that he will be given down the road. Pride happens when you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But let's bring it a little closer to home, shall we? I mean, I would imagine that most of you have no desire to have a museum after yourself. But I imagine that many of us struggle with ways in which we promote ourselves. 
How do you promote yourself? What do you think about your own gifts, skills, and abilities, maybe in a way that are more highly given than you ought to? What ways are you striving to be remembered? Not in a healthy fashion, but even in an unhealthy one. Maybe you find pride in your skills. Maybe you find pride in your looks. Maybe you find pride in your family. Or maybe you find pride in your success. Some of us are good at masking our pride. But in the quiet moments, in the recesses of our own mind, we know those areas in which we think we are better than those around us. Those areas in which we think that we know more or deserve more. Those areas that we struggle with pride. But you need to know. You've heard it said before, and I believe it to be true, that pride is the root of all of our sin. And God feels very specifically about this sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 11.2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. And that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 11. There's pride. And guess what? These are competent people. And in their resourcefulness, their pride is met with skill, met with ability, met with resourcefulness. And their prideful objectives are beginning to be achieved. Not only do they conceive of the tower in their pride, but they have the ability to pull it off. To make a name for themselves. This pride is also in some ways motivated by fear, it says, lest they be dispersed throughout the earth. But this pride leads them toward further rebellion, as pride often does. It minimizes the words of outsiders, even God himself, and it maximizes your own elevated sense of worth and opinion. It leads to further rebellion. In Genesis chapter 9, these people were called to disperse over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and fill it, and now they're coming back together. It says in the genealogy in chapter 10, they had a bunch of different languages, and now it's saying they have one language. What's going on? They're going against the God-given command in rebellion, coming back together. But along with that, there's another interesting piece of this offense that I want to highlight. And we might call this piece humanizing God. And it has to do with the tower itself. Look with me at verse 4 again of chapter 11. Verse 3 says, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. There was common practice in the ancient world of building towers with a goal of reaching the heavens. These towers were called ziggurats. And it was a tower that often was built in a pagan nation. A ziggurat had no practical purpose at all. It was considered a sacred space. It was a tower that was built high enough and strong enough simply to support a staircase. And on the staircase up to heaven... You would find priests that would go up and offer sacrifices and acts of worship. But even more than that, the staircase was built 
for the deity to come down out of heaven and to bless the people. And thus, people were attempting to manipulate or to control or to evoke the blessing of their deities as they built these towers. Now, if this was a ziggurat at Babel, we're not just talking about pride and rebellion, which and that would be plenty, believe me. But now we're talking about the fact that humanity was so distorted in their view of who God was that they actually believed that they could manipulate him into coming down and being present in sinful humanity on their own terms. The first part of Genesis, we saw the major issue was their own moral destitution, and now we're seeing that humanity's major issue was theological destitution. In a sense, they thought they could humanize God with the goal of having him do their bidding. Now, that might feel, as we talk about it, that might feel thousands of years away. But it's a lot closer than you think. Because the temptation to humanize God, to do our bidding, is something that is pervasive in our culture and our time something that we all struggle with in a very a variety of ways. Let me explain. How do we humanize God and thus, in a sense, abuse him? How do we say, God, we're not going to allow you to be God. We're going to take your godness away, and we're going to manipulate or attempt to manipulate you to function in line with our own bidding. Well, the first way we do this is that when we when we assign him desires, assign God desires, or we call on him for answers that are different or apart from the way that he's already revealed himself. An example of that would be when you do something that you know probably isn't a godly thing to do, but you say, God, please bless me as I enter into this relationship with so-and-so, even though you know you're not supposed to do that. God, please bless my new endeavor, though it is criminal in nature. <laughs> I had a, a colleague one time say, God, please, friends, please pray for us. Please pray for us because so-and-so is trying to avoid the immigration officer as he comes back into the country. This is a calling upon God to bless things that are in contrary to his character, thus humanizing him and, in a sense, abusing him. Another way we do this regularly is that sometimes we reduce God by limiting his power. God is all-powerful in his nature, and he is able to fulfill and to give you contentment in all areas of life through his person and through the work of Jesus Christ in your life. And yet, we are so often tempted to reduce that power or to avoid it by saying things like, God, I will only ever be fulfilled in this life if... Dot, dot, dot. I will only be happy in this life if I find a spouse. I will only be fulfilled if I get out of this job that I have right now and get into something that's more in line with what I want to do. God, joy and contentment will only be mine if I'm cured from this disease. 
When we do those things, when we say those things, we reduce or we limit God's power. And you need to know that God is capable through the work of Jesus in your life to give you complete fulfillment and contentment. He has already given you everything you need. And if that's true, if that's true, then it is part of our task in the Christian life to continue to embrace, depend, rely upon him for our wants outside of our needs. But when we limit ourselves to joy, contentment, to only our external circumstances with what our temporary desires are, we are in sense saying, God, you are not as powerful as you say you are. Taking away his godness. Another way that we humanize God is we limit his autonomy. It's easy to think that God owes us something after we've committed to following him, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, God, I've given money to you faithfully now for a lot of years. You owe me a well-paying job. God, I have taken my children to church every Sunday throughout their whole upbringing. You owe me that they would follow you in this and that type of way. God, I have surrendered my whole life to you. You owe me certain types of blessings that I cannot achieve for myself. It's easy to think that God owes us something, but here's the problem. When you do that, if God, if you have the sense that God owes you, then you limit his autonomy. And an autonomous, a God who is not autonomous is not God. <laughs> a God that doesn't have his own sovereign will is not God. A God that is bound by your will is not God. And that's a temptation for us. We should never think of our worship to God in a quid pro quo type of manner. In fact, anything and everything that we do in response to God, whether that is our worship to him, whether that is surrendering to him, whether that is giving to him, whether that is serving him with our lives, whether that's being charitable with people who are in need, whatever it is, anything should be in response to the fact that he owes us absolutely nothing, but we owe him everything. And this is part of his power and his autonomy. So how does God respond to a prideful people? Well, we see here in Genesis 11 that God does not allow the proud rebellion to succeed. Look with me at the text. Verse 5 he comes down and he investigates. They wanted him to come down the ladder to bless them. He comes down and he investigates and he decides he doesn't like what he sees. Why? Because they are trying to seek him in a way outside of what he has revealed about himself to be true. Verse 6 and 7, he sees the danger of this situation. 
Behold, they're one people. They have one language. Nothing will be impossible for them now. And he intervenes by confusing the language and by spreading them throughout the earth. And his intervention is both punishment for sin, but even more than that, it's preventative in nature. He could have easily just destroyed them in judgment for sin. But it's preventative in nature. He's not afraid. When he says, behold, now nothing will be impossible for them, he's not somehow threatened by that. He's God. But what he is concerned about is that their pride, their unabashed pride will take over to the fact where they will try to do anything and everything to seek his bidding. And so in, a, in what is ultimately an act of incredible grace, he confuses their language, he stops this project, and he spreads them throughout the earth. That's his short-term response. But God also has a long-term response. And this is where the story of Genesis 1 to 11 ultimately points us to the promise of Genesis 12. And it ultimately points us to the arc of the whole Bible. The short-term response is to spread them out. The long-term response is that knowing that the sin problem wasn't going away, knowing that there would be more actions from prideful people, that there would be more distortions of God's character throughout human history, that there would be more manipulations of his works or attempts anyway, God enacts a long-term response. He would use a people to show himself to the world. He would use Israel to ultimately be the people from which his own son would come into the world. You see, the people at Babel wanted the blessing of God, and they didn't get it on that day, but they would get it someday. The people at Babel pridefully built a tower in an attempt for God to come down. And though he didn't descend the ladder in the way that they wanted on that day, he would come down someday. Their prideful acts toward him were met with humble acts by God as he would come down in the form of a servant, his very son Jesus, humbly coming to bless even a prideful people. At the beginning of the, men- at the message, I mentioned kind of one of the themes of Genesis 1 to 11 is that sin was our biggest problem. And we can, we can recognize that intellectually speaking, but I hope you realize just how desperate, and I hope you feel how desperate of a problem this really is. I've been up since 4.30 this morning. I woke up to the sound of our four-year-old crying in her bed, screaming. She has a reoccurring ear ear infection, and it decided to come back this morning at 4.30. So I got out of bed, and I went, and I got her an ibuprofen and a cup of water, and I sat with her in bed as she cried for a while, and sort of, you know, the waves that little kids go through when they're feeling intense pain. They don't know how to process pain. They don't know what to do. And this ultimately became a picture of desperation as she was crying in my arms and she was getting really worked up and she started saying, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, daddy, what am I going to do? What am I, I don't know what to do. Help me, I don't know what to do. A picture of desperation. 
when you come to understand the weight of your own sin, when your eyes are open to the reality of your offense to God, a God who has only ever loved you, who has only ever been kind to you, who has only ever sought relationship with you, when you come to realize the depth of your own depravity, the natural response is desperation. Oh no, oh no, oh no. I don't know what to do. Daddy, help me. I don't know what to do. And he helps us. Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were still weak, you might even say desperate, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, I know that many of us here today have sensed and even felt that level of desperation of our own sin. And we've called upon a Savior and he has saved us. And I know that there are some among us today that have never really seen your own sin with that type of weight or desperation. And my most sincere encouragement to you is think carefully about this God that we serve and respond in the way that he calls you to respond. To seek the forgiveness that he offers so freely, the help that he gives to undeserving people. This is why we celebrate Christmas. <laughs> This is why we celebrate the fact that God comes down in the form of a humble servant. This is why we partake of the Lord's Supper every month together as a church because we remember that while we were still weak, when we were the most desperate, God sent his son to die for us, to forgive us, to help us, to bless us even though we were undeserving of his blessing. This is pure unadulterated grace. As we turn our attention to the Lord's table this morning, we celebrate that reality. If you're here today then, and you're a Christian, if you've recognized your desperate need for a Savior and put your faith in him, then by all means, take with great joy and delight and gratitude that you are desperate no more. And if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then friends, wait no longer. Let today be the day where you say, God, please forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you about that. Please come forward after the service, and we'll be here waiting for you. As our ushers prepare, let's pray together. Let's ask God for his forgiveness afresh. Let's confess our sins to him. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us or forsake us, that you are a God who is quick to forgive and that your forgiveness is displayed in the coming of your son, that you did come down, not down the ladder of Babel, but that you came down 
in human form, humble and gracious. And we need your forgiveness and we confess our sins to you now. Please hear our prayer.